Welcome to the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Jose Solis. Whoever said that theater was bound by all those ancient buildings along Broadway in Midtown New York has clearly never heard of This Is Not A Theater Company, which is one of the most unique artistic projects in the entire world. Today, we speak to its artistic director, Aaron Mee, who tells us about all the plays they've done on the New York City subway, the Staten Island Ferry, and even a cafe. So enjoy the show. Thank you for joining us again, Erin. I'm sorry. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I am a huge fan of, of your work. And thank I you. wanted to start by asking, uh, well, for our listeners who are not familiar with your work, can you explain what This Is Not a Theater Company does and why you do the kind of theater you do? We do plays in swimming pools, cafes, the Staten Island Ferry, uh, a lot of site-based work. We did a piece about income inequality in actually my apartment in New York City, and then we toured it around to other apartments in Brooklyn and other apartments elsewhere. So a lot of our work is site-based. A lot of it is interactive. We like to cast the audience in the play, either very literally or more figuratively. Um, So, for example, in Café Play, which started at the Cornelia Street Café, we had people come in and sit down and eat and drink during the play. And then we had scenes about how certain people treated waiters or um, different kinds of microaggressions. Um, We even had a, a monologue by a cockroach about what it's like to be a cockroach in New York City and how everybody hates cockroaches. And um, <clears throat> and my feeling was if we could get you to feel empathy for a cockroach, we could maybe get you to feel empathy for another human being. This is my hope. I don't know if this works. But anyway, um, and so the idea was that the audience was cast in the play as other people in the cafe and implicated then in the message of the play, right? So then... I hope the question that one asks at the end of cafe play is, well, how do I treat the waiters when I go out to eat? How do I treat other people who are sitting next to me at the table? How do I treat other people on the subway getting there and coming back, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, In pool play, the audience sits around the edge of the pool and they put their feet in the subject matter of the play, which is water, swimming pools. Um, And so the idea is, you know, as you're feeling the movement of the water and feeling the temperature and smelling the chlorine, you hear these scenes and monologues that are about the history of swimming pools, which is really a way of looking at the history of um, the United States. So for example, swimming pools were in uh, set the first pools in New York City were actually um, created for people on the Lower East Side in tenements, uh, and so it was a place where they could go to recreate, to use the verb form of that word, and to bathe. Um, <clears throat> and they were segregated by gender because it was not okay with people that to have men and women swimming together. This would be very bad. Uh, when they were desegregated by gender. Uh, swimming pools began to be segregated by race because no one wanted black men swimming with white women, right? It's crazy. Okay. Uh, then at the point at which they were desegregated by race, they began to be segregated by class, right? People began to build their own swimming pools in their own backyards, part of white flight, right? Um, 
so we sort of chart the history of swimming pools along with the history of sort of some of the cultural practices that have shaped who we are as a country today, uh, along with monologues about pollution and things like that. And so, again, you sit there with your feet in, your wa- in the water and you think, right, um, how much water do I use in my shower every morning? How much water do I do I let the tap run? Do I do this? Do I do that? Etc. So I hope that you begin to think about sort of more responsible social practices and communities of swimming pools and things like that. Um, we actually had a woman who came to see the show from Flint, Michigan. And she came up to me after the show and she said it was the most amazing experience to be able to put her feet in the water in this huge swimming pool and to think about what that meant coming from Flint, Michigan, where no one has drinking water. Yeah. And I think about it now as we read all the news stories about Cape Town going dry and you begin to think about, right, what's the next city and what's going to happen and what are the, right... And the income inequality, of course, the wealthy people are going to have water and everyone else is going to have to queue up for two hours at a public tap to get water for drinking. Forget about bathing and washing clothes and all that just for drinking and eating. So that we also had in pool play, we also had Jonathan Matthews doing these really fun dances in the water and splashing around so you would get a serious scene and then some fun and then a serious scene and then some fun and that's a dramaturgical structure that we tried to repeat in cafe play um so that i i hope that our plays are fun and funny but also make you think very deeply about empathy behavior microaggressions how we treat each other in this world etc So I think that's what we do. I think we do site-specific work that I hope gets you to empathize with other people. And I hope is, in fact, a kind of workshop for empathy, which is to say, again, you know, we always, uh, as you said in, in your review of Café Play, don't is this is these are not plays where you sit back and watch the results of other people's creativity we ask you to co-create the play with us <clears throat> which is always exciting i i wonder when i when i went to uh, pool play mm-hmm. i loved the uh, esther esther williams uh oh. <laughs> you know numbers and i wonder i remember what was the place the name of the place where the where pool play was set the uh, the gym Oh, Waterside Swim and Fitness. Yeah. yeah. I remember there was a glass ceiling yes. over that pool. And there were moments when I was sitting there with my feet in the water where I, you know, looked up because it was dark. Yeah. And you could see the reflection. Yeah. And I wonder if you ever had a chance to see those numbers from above somewhere. I did. <gasps> there actually, there's a, there's a, um, sort of lifting workout yoga studio above and it's gorgeous from up there and looking up to the ceiling and seeing what's reflected down um i i always actually love watching some of those swim numbers that way and it's always the kids who figure that out before the adults (laughs) so they're you know they start to look around at what adults are like i'm supposed to be looking at the pool so i'm gonna look at the pool and kids are like, well, the whole thing is part of the set. So I'm going to look around and what's on the ceiling. And then they begin to see the musical numbers reflected in the glass on the ceiling. And then other people see the kids looking up and they start to look up. And so, you the know. The kids are right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Always. You, you mentioned just earlier, you know, how you want people to be a part of the play. Yeah. And 
am I correct in assuming that? Well, obviously, you're putting the the, the notion that the world's a stage to yes. practice in your daily life and your work. So, can you recall your favorite performance from a random New Yorker this week? So many. New York is full of performances. <laughs> you know, the uh, Irving Goffman wrote a book called uh, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And I keep mistitling it The Performance of Self in Everyday Life <laughs> because I think everyone's performing all the time and especially in New York. I always love it when people start talking to strangers on the subway. In moments like that, you, I feel you either have a choice of, you know, <laughs> or you can say, okay, I'm on this train with these New Yorkers. Who's here? How are we doing? What's, you know, um, <clears throat> and I always love watching what people are wearing, what styles they have. I love it. I have to confess, I really love it when people start performing in the subway. Um, so I was on the L train um, a week or so ago, and these two guys got on the subway, and they're the guys who use the poles, and I guess some people don't like it. I happen to love it. But they got on and they said, we promise we're not going to kick anyone. We're not going to. And then they did this amazing kind of Olympic gymnastics routine using the poles and the and they cheered everyone up. Everyone on the subway was smiling by the time they were finished because they had some great jokes and they had, you know, and it was this wonderful performance. That's a more sort of literal sense of the term mm. performance on the street. But um I also just love it when people walk by and wave at other people or say hello or, you know, because, again, that kind of um, that kind of performance of I'm in a good mood. Let's all be in a good mood um, is there's a term called emotion contagion where we catch each other's emotions. So we catch that person's good mood and then we feel good, too. Right. Something else that. You know, when I was sitting during Cafe Play, I had never thought about this before. But, you know, besides looking, obviously, at the, the performances of the actors and right. also the performances of the people who were sitting next to me who I yeah. didn't know, I was very self-conscious about my own performance. Uh, right, yeah. right. And, right. you know, there's even a moment in the, um, the play um, if I can recall, where we, you know, like we, we listen to people's like inner monologues. Yes. And can you talk a little bit about this? Because, you know, we're used to seeing proscenium type theater where the spotlight's on the performer. But in Cafe Play, for instance, you know, the lights were on. So the spotlight right. was on all of us. Well, you were all in the play. I would argue that you were performing a role in the play. You were performing the role of someone who had come to Cornelia Street Cafe to have lunch in the cafe. Um, and you got to overhear what other people were saying out loud and sometimes their inner monologues and sometimes their dream ballets and uh, sometimes the monologue of a cockroach <laughs> that I, I confess ours was a rubber cockroach, not a real cockroach. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's part of what This Is Not A Theater Company does, is we put you on stage as well. And I think we make you aware of how you perform in your daily life and the kinds of, you know, we all choose what to wear in the morning and to go out. And part of that is because we are saying something about who we are, how we identify, who we identify with, what groups we do belong to or wish we belong to or think we belong to. Um, and and uh, 
so I think those performances become part of the play. Um, and again, it's uh, the idea is that we don't pretend you're not there, right? You're there with us on the stage. And in fact, in cafe play, I deliberately placed scenes around the room so that you would have to turn around and look behind you and look through other people and have other people look at you as they were looking at a scene. Um, and so I sort of staged it to make sure you were center stage right. um, at some points. Yeah. This is something that, I mean, maybe Rob would not be the right word, but I'm going to go with that one. Uh, that's, that's something that, you know, traditional, like, you know, like something on Broadway, for instance, once right. the lights go out, they rob us of that. Like, we are not allowed to perform. Right. Like, and I find myself when the lights go out, you know, like, I slouch or I'll, like, yeah. you know, like, I'll, like, start, like, you know, like, touching my hair or whatever. Right. And that's something that I can't do, like, at pool play or cafe play. Right, right. Well, or you can, but you just know that it's part of the play. Right. Um, as is, you know, I think the thing about a, a traditional proscenium production, first of all, is that there's a fourth wall. So the idea is that we are uh, peeking through a keyhole at something that's happening for the first and only time. Right. Um, and the idea then is that we have to pretend we're not there at all. So that's where Wagner, you know, turns the lights out on the audience. And that's why if somebody coughs, everybody's outraged because <laughs> it's like they admitted they were actually present. Um, we actually bring you into the production and allow you to roam around with us. In that sense, I hope we're also building a temporary community. And I think our first production, A Serious Banquet, we would get emails uh, from people saying, oh, B A Serious Banquet was uh, based or inspired by the dinner party that Picasso threw for Henri Rousseau in 1908. So the idea was that you would come to this Cubist dinner party. And uh, so people sat and they had dinner together and they toasted Rousseau and... Um, And uh, audience members actually would exchange email addresses and phone numbers and keep in touch after the show. And we would hear from people, you know, oh, yes, I made a fr new friend at the show and blah, 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 blah. And um, so I think we do try to create a sense of community. Um, and what that means is you have to pretend you're there. But the other <laughs> thing that I think happens at site-based work is that the site is a central character in the piece. So the pool is the central character of pool play, right? The cafe and the behaviors that happen in a cafe, are the, that's the central sort of theme, um, journey, uh, character of cafe play. Um, and so, for example, the perfume that somebody's wearing when they sit next to you, That's not outside the frame of reference. So when you sit in a proscenium theater and you're watching the stage, if you're smelling perfume, you, you, you teach yourself to ignore it because it's quote unquote not part of the play. But in cafe play, it is because that's how cafes are. People wear perfume or the temperature of the room. That's part of the play or, you know, the smell of the wine or the coffee or whatever's being served. That's part of the play. And so it becomes a much more multi-sensory experience, right? You feel the temperature of the water in pool play. You feel the temperature of the room. You smell the chlorine. That's part of the play. Um, and so uh, even, in fact, in cafe play, the background sounds that were happening, because occasionally, you know, the dishwasher would run 
that became part of the play. Um, the clatter of the dishes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So all those things um, are not outside the frame and neither are you. Mm. So in a way it's less realistic, right? But in a way it's also more realistic because you are there as you and um, you're not sort of shutting out or editing some of the things that you're actually perceiving. Right. A lot of the, uh, the idea of, you know, proscenium theater is to create this illusion of order, you know, like everything has to right. run on time. Like if a light, if a light bulb goes off, it's the end of the world. Right. But in your place, you're embracing chaos. I am. And <laughs> can you, I would love to hear some more about that and what you've, you know, even if this sounds like a very grandiose question, what have you learned as an artist and as a theater maker from just giving up and saying, hey, chaos, right. chaos has to be my friend? Yeah. And I actually have to say, I, um, <laughs> I'm control freak in many ways <laughs> so in many ways you could argue that these are exercises in me teaching myself how you know to give up control um uh because again in sight-based work right if an airplane flies above that's part that just became part of the play right um and i actually to use cafe play as an example i was driven crazy in our first few run-throughs about like oh we can hear the dishes clacking in the background and blah 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 <laughs> blah and i went to the owner of the restaurant and i was like is there any way that we can be quieter and finally i had so many audience members come up to me and i would you know say was it you know could you hear okay was it distracting and they said no it was absolutely part of the piece and in fact if it wasn't happening you'd have to record that and put it in the play oh wow and i thought okay then i'm just going to i'm going to go breathe with it um <laughs> and there was a time where um You know, there's a time in cafe play where we serve food and we have we call it the dance of crayons because we draw with crayons on the tablecloths, um, which is an idea that actually came simply because that cafe had paper tablecloths. And I thought, oh, well, then we have to draw on them. And they had crayons. And I was like, we've got to do this. So then we made some choreography out of it. And we, um, you know, we start drawing and then we give the crayons to the audience and we encourage them to draw and then people start drawing together. And in the meantime, we're serving food that is then actually eaten. And one time the food was slow in the kitchen. Um, <clears throat> we had more audience members, I guess, than they had anticipated. And so there were some things that got left behind. And so um, <clears throat> we were still serving food after the dance of crayons had ended and into the next scene. And I had been trying to control, like, we will deliver food in this, you know, two minute, blah, 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 blah. And this is, these are the two minutes when we're going to, you know, deliver food. And it worked so beautifully when it didn't work. And so <laughs> I thought, okay, right, I'm going to learn to let go. Um, <clears throat> in pool play one time, there was a birthday party going on in the yoga studio, which has a glass wall that it shares with the pool. And I thought it would be distracting. And I was, I spent the whole, you know, night that night going, oh, no, this is so distracting. And I, you know, asked people afterwards and heard, and they thought, no, that was a great part of the play. It was just, you know, something happening in another room, right? So I'm learning to, uh, to lean into the chaos and to appreciate it and to not think of it as um, detrimental, but to really enjoy it. And even sometimes to set up moments where, 
chaos is highlighted or occurs deliberately or we embrace it or so I guess chaos is the perfect segue to go into subway place. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually, I will say one thing. We did do a piece called Ready Made Cabaret, and we really embraced the chaos. So we had 28 scenes, and on each given uh, performance, we would perform 20 out of those 28 scenes. And the scenes we performed and the order in which they were performed in was determined by rolling the dice. So we had a tray of different dice and we would ask the audience, you know, roll the dice. Ah, 10. Okay. And we would count down. We had a list of scenes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And we would name the scene and then do the scene and then offer the tray of dice to somebody else. And they would roll the dice and it would come up, you know, six. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. And we would do this scene. Um, And so each night it was a different play. Wow. And it was really wonderful. But it, it, it requires a particular kind of actor who can roll with that. Um, and our actors were really brilliant, um, not only in doing the scenes, but also in, um, in doing a different play every night. I mean, so within the scene, the play was the same from night to night. But, but also because of the scene order or the fact that... Um, a certain play, you know, a certain scene wouldn't happen. You, the audience made the meaning. So you would sort of X scene would happen and then Y. And if X, Y, and Z happened, then you put them together in one way. And if A, three zebra happened, you would put it together in a different way. And, and the play would mean something else. Mm. So we were dealing with notions of ready-made and notions of fate and chance and free will and order and chaos and the need to make meaning out of things. So you would always get some of that, uh, but the nuances of that would come out differently. So that was my real lesson in embracing chaos. That sounds really wonderful. <laughs> Can you first uh, tell our listeners what the subway plays and I guess the fairy play mm -hmm. are? These are, I call them pod plays. This is a term I got from a company in Canada that actually invented this genre. Um, pod plays are site-specific audio plays. So we have one called Ferry Play. Um, you get on the Staten Island Ferry in Lower Manhattan, and Act 1 takes you to Staten Island, and then Act 2 takes you back to Manhattan. Um, and we've created an app called Fairy Play that you download from um, Android or um, Apple, the Apple App Store. Uh, and it gives you the bios and the program and the instructions for doing it and then the two audio tracks. And so um, what I love about these plays, and I'll, I'll talk about, I'll, I'll use Fairy Play as the basic example and then go into Subway Plays where it gets more complicated because mm -hmm. there are three of them and the Subway is more complicated. Um, <clears throat> but um, within the audio, the audio track obviously never changes. But what's happening as you're riding the ferry changes depending on the time of day, the day of the week, the month of the year. So for example, these are what we call self-scheduled plays. So you can go any month, any day, any time. Um, and we had someone ride them at dawn and say that, you know, they were riding the, the ferry and the sun was coming up behind the Statue of Liberty. 
And so that's one lighting design in one version of that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we've had people do them at night when it was dark and uh, you could see stars. And But um, it, it's very different at rush hour, you know, when it's packed and crazy. Sunny, Sunday morning in the summer, it might be full of tourists. You know, it's a very different vibe. Who's on the subway, who's not on the... Uh, sorry, ferry. Um and uh, we have certain lines that are flexible. So, for example, there's a line in fairy play where this young teenage girl um, says, look over there, there's a creepy guy over there. And your tendency, because you hear it, is to look. And if you look and there's a creepy guy over there, you say, right, there's a creepy <laughs> guy over there. If you look and you see a guy who isn't creepy, you think, well, wait a minute, is she being really judgmental? Or what's, I don't think that guy's creepy. And if you look and there's nobody there, you think, oh, is she playing a joke on me? Is she, you know, uh, you looked, you know, that thing that we, uh, kids used to do in middle school, I guess, like, haha, I made you look, you know, that kind of thing. So <clears throat> the, the recording is the same, but the way you interpret it is different depending on what's going on around you live, depending on the live experience. Um, and so we're asking the listener to mix the recording with the live experience to create the play and uh, there are certain things that we encourage you to do or lead you to do take a selfie with the Statue of Liberty in the background etc so there are certain things that are timed kind of that happen in the four to six minute range which is when you're likely to want to take a selfie with the Statue of Liberty um, and then we also encourage you, because it's site-based, to, you know, Paul says, feel the wind, smell the, you know. Um, and so we encourage you to think of the wind as part of the play. We encourage you to think of the smells on the ferry as part of the play. We encourage you to feel that rumbling of the of the Staten Island Ferry under your feet and to think of that not as outside the frame of production, but as part of the live experience. So it's also a bodily experience. You, you know, part of the play is to smell it, touch it, feel it, etc. Um, and we do that also with subway play. So part of the play is, you know, walking up and down the steps, going onto the subway, feeling the, you know, uh, rumbling of the subway train. Um, Part of it is smelling all the smells on the subway. Part of it is looking around and seeing who's on the subway with you. So, as you know, we have three, the subway plays is a trilogy of plays. There's one for the N train, one for the 7 train, and one for the L train. And they're very site-specific. Um, you can't take the seven train plane on the play on the L train. It won't make any sense. The characters are different. You'll be looking around going, what? This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you really have to do the L train on the L train. And I know someone who took the seven train play on the A train and called me and said, well, this makes no sense. And I said, right, <laughs> because you did it on the <laughs> A train. <laughs> so if you take the seven train with our recording, we have characters speaking in Mandarin, in Colombian Spanish, in Hindi, in um, Russian, because those are many of the people taking the seven train to neighborhoods in which they live. We've got an Irish woman, for example, Sunnyside used to be, um, I think it's less so now, but used to be a heavily Irish neighborhood. 
Uh, if you get off at 74th Street, uh, it's very uh, Indian American. There's a Colombian neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. And so those people are riding the subway back and forth. Um, it's also multilingual. The seven train play is multilingual, as is the subway. If you get on the subway, newspapers are in Korean, uh, Mandarin, Spanish, Hindi, English, and a number of other languages that I can't remember at the moment. Um, so it takes you on a journey of what it's like to be living in New York. Um, it also takes you, you know, on the seven line, so you get a particular view looking out the window. All these subways, these are three subway lines that go outside. Uh, so at every point in each journey, you get to go outside and look around. Um, but you also, I hope, look around at other people who are sharing this journey with you and think of them as being in your play. And then you think of yourself as being in the play. Right. Oh. And the seven uh, train play makes one very hungry. So I just want to put uh, that out there. <laughs> right, right. So that's the other thing is that we encourage you to get out and walk around. So, for example, here's the other interesting thing dramaturgically, I think, about subway plays. I think they are unique. Or let me just say, I have not encountered a play in which you can do act one and act two in either order and have it make sense. These three plays are written, fairy play is written to start in Manhattan and go to Staten Island and then turn around and come back. And uh, I was talking to someone from Staten Island and she said, oh, this is very Burroughist. <laughs> um, and I thought, right, it is, it's true because I'm from Manhattan, I live in Manhattan and so I think of going to Staten Island, I don't think of returning to Staten Island. So when we did subway plays, I was very conscious that I wanted people to be able to do the play in either order or either direction first. So there is a track for the seven train that always goes from Times Square to 74th Street. And there is a track that always goes from 74th Street to Times Square. But you can start the play at 74th Street and go to Times Square, in which case Times Square is intermission. And then you take the second act takes you back to 74th Street. Or you can start at Times Square and act one goes to 74th Street, in which case I urge you to get off and go to the Jackson Diner or have momos from the Tibetan dumpling truck mm. or visit the Arepa Lady. There are some great Arepas there at 74th Street. Also some great Arepas at the 84th Street stop. Um, <clears throat> but the play doesn't take you that far. Uh, so the other thing is that when it's self-scheduled, your intermission, you know, you can go out and just turn around and come right back. Or you can go out and have lunch or go out and have dinner or go out and you know, do whatever you want and do the second act a day later, a month later, a year later, five minutes later. So that then determines how you interpret the play, right? How many people are on the subway determines how it feels to you, right? Whether you get a seat or not, et cetera, et cetera. So we're, again, asking the listener to mix the fixed audio recording with the ever-changing chaos of the New York City subway system and who's on with you and what it feels like and whether it's daytime, whether it's the middle of winter and you're wearing your coat and you're freezing or whether it's August and, you know, et cetera. Right. When I did Fairy Play, there was this moment coming back from Staten Island where so many elements converged mm. as we were docking, 
you know, back into the station where I said to myself, Erin, this is witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, like you said, you can't control that. That's going to change. But there are, I'm pretty confident that there are going to be many moments in all the, po the pod plays where people are going to say, how did she pull this off? So I wonder from just from like a technical um, logistics point of view, what was the most challenging part of creating the pod plays, especially with the MTA being so MTA-ish? Right. Time? Well, yes, the most challenging part of subway plays is the MTA. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will say that it is partly witchcraft, but I will say it's also very carefully planned, which is, I think, what you were leading up to. Um, so, for example, um, and I'll use fairy play because it's the easiest example, but then I'll give you some examples from subway play. So um, the first thing that we did, I talked to Jesse Bear about, um, I said, you know, I found out about these things called pod plays, and I think they're really interesting and they're really exciting, but the ones that I found... As part of the play, they say, now turn left here. Now look up at that. And I don't want stage directions to be built into the play. So my first challenge to us for fairy play, and this is a challenge I gave to all of us for subway plays, is how can we do this without stage directions? How can we invite you to look at something or think about something or pay attention to something or be mindful of something without directly ask saying look at that <laughs> turn this way um <clears throat> the other thing was that so uh that was the first sort of challenge even before we got on the ferry so then in for fairy play jesse and i rode the ferry a bunch of times uh and we rode it the first time we rode the ferry there was um we were outside and we said right okay there's the statue of liberty we have to put that in the play <laughs> and how does it feel watching the water and there are the seagulls and so we have to put them in the play and blah blah blah, blah. and then as we were coming back um, there were two completely trashed guys talking about, you know, and I tried to record them. And of course, because that's illegal, the, re the recording actually didn't work, which I think is just like, ha you know, that's the universe saying it was wrong of you to record <laughs> two people without telling them you were recording them. Um, but uh, Jesse had actually remembered enough of it and rewrote this scene for these two drunk guys on the ferry and so one of the things that we did was to really look around and kind of do our homework who's riding the ferry what kinds of people what are they saying what's what does it feel like on the ferry what is this site giving us in terms of right so that rather than imposing you know um people riding the ferry who weren't there we actually tried to figure out who was on the ferry uh so we have some tourists we have a commuter we have a couple of drunk guys we have you know um and in subway plays we did the same thing so um which is i think why each of the plays feels so different and why they can't be it's not just a generic play it's the l train play you really have to be on the l train for that play to make sense um and uh so the other thing was to try to figure out okay for example on fairy play we know we passed the statue of liberty 
we know people are going to want to take selfies. We might as well just give in to that and work that into the play. So several of our characters take selfies with the Statue of Liberty. And I kept trying to time it so that I would see, you know, when are people, when does it make sense in the actual ride that you would want to take a selfie? And each time I rode the ferry and was timing it, it seemed to come in the sort of four to six minute range. Mm. So that if it came in the recording before four minutes, you would say, oh no, it's not the right moment to take a selfie. If it came after six minutes, you would say, it's not the, wait, I, I missed it. S but anywhere in that four to six minute range would make sense for characters to say, oh, I want my, you know, to take a selfie. So Jesse had put the selfie dialogue right at the beginning. And I said, no, we have to have some stuff, you know. So she rearranged the order of the dialogue to put some other stuff at the beginning and then have the selfie stuff come in the foot. And then we did a scratch recording with the cast. And then I took that recording on the ferry and I said, right, okay, this works, this doesn't work. Ah, the timing's off here. We have to make this longer. We have to make this shorter, blah, 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 blah. And then we did another scratch recording and again took it on the ferry. And I can't remember how many scratch recordings we did, but then the actors listened to themselves on the ferry and, you know, listened to how they sounded and used that. And then we made the final recording. Um, and so I will also say that if you listen to ferry play or any of the subway plays in your living room, I think they sound horrible <laughs> um, because they're meant to be heard on site in situ, right? I mean, there, there really is... Um, they are meant to mix with the environment. Um, and because they're meant to mix, people are talking a little louder than they would if it was a radio play. So it's not a radio play, it's really a pod play. Um, so the same thing, for example, on <clears throat> um, the L train play, uh, there's a reference to the Domino Sugar Factory and the fact that we're going under it at that point. So the challenge was to, um, Colin knew he wanted that dialogue to happen roughly around the time we were going under. So then did we have to move this scene over there and that mm. scene over there to make sure that this would hit at the, about the right place? The, so those kinds of magical moments are still magic, but we have ridden the subway, I mean the subway, 80,000 gazillion <laughs> billion times going, okay, this worked, that didn't work, let's move this around, can we fix that? What happens if we do this, etc. cetera. Um, and Jenny Lynn on the seven train has a couple of references to Five Points, uh, which was a place that graffiti artists used to, I mean, it was an outdoor graffiti museum basically, which then got torn down. And now some of the graffiti artists have sued I'm so happy. Um, and uh, there's a reference to some stained glass windows that are in some of the outdoor stations. And the trick is there are actually three sta stations with stained glass windows. So she ref by the time she refers to it, you are either coming to it, you have already seen it, and you're coming to it again, or you remember seeing it a second ago in the subway. So it works differently, but it will still work if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense because, you know, I live off the N train, mm -hmm. so I've done the N train play a couple times. And they're also, in a way, kind of like ghostly histories of New York. Like, yes. I imagine people, you know, like 50 years from now, if we're still around and the, the subway still works, right? Uh, people going, huh, uh, you know, like, I, 
you know, like it, it invites people to to see things that aren't there, which I think is lovely. Exactly. Which I think we've also built in. I mean, in other words, I think some of the references are deliberately already passed. Some of them are deliberately present and some of them will, you know, we'll find out. We'll find out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So these are literally plays that you can put in your pocket. Yes. Why was it important for you to do something like that? I mean, obviously, I've, I've spoken to you before about the importance of the uh, democratization of theater and how yeah. ridiculously expensive theater is. Right. And now you're saying, hey, you can have four plays for very little money that you can experience over and over and over and over and over again. Right. Well, to me, I actually, when I started making these plays, I just thought it was an interesting genre. It was, for me, an interesting challenge to try to make a recording a fixed recording work with the chaos of the real world. Um, once we did fairy play and put it out there, I, I thought, how are we going to get these audio clips to people? Um, New World Theater in Canada, uh, their pod plays are one continuous pod play. But because we did, on the ferry, two acts, we had two soundtracks. And I thought, well, we can't just put them up, so what are we going to do? So we decided to make an app. Then I thought, well, we're putting the play in the app store, and most people are used to paying 99 cents or having it be free or $2.99, so we can't suddenly charge $20 for a theater ticket. So we decided to make it $1.99. And that was then the moment I realized that we were offering somebody a theater experience for $1.99. And that, that, and that we're also, I, I also teach at NYU and Tisch. And around the time or shortly after we made Fairy Play, I was speaking to a first generation college student. And uh, she said, you know, um, we go see stuff at the public theater and I know it's for me and I know I am welcome there, but I don't feel welcome. You know, I'm a first generation college student. I come from the Bronx. I don't feel at home in the public theater. And I know Oscar Eustace would die tens of thousand deaths to hear that because I know he really, as did Joe Papp, the idea of the public theater is to you know, make everybody in New York feel welcome. But that lobby has a lot of expensive real estate and lighting design and, you know, um, and uh, you also have to show up, you know, Wednesday at eight o'clock and you feel like you've got to dress appropriately, whatever that is, right? <laughs> and I, and I, you know, granted, that changes from theater to theater, and it changes over time. And but um, to do a pod play, you go anytime you want. You don't have to pre-plan it, so you don't have to get a babysitter and buy your ticket in advance, and you know, blah 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 blah, and then show up. You just, oh, I have an hour. I, I'm going to do this pod play now. You don't have to wear anything special. You don't have to. Um, and you download it and you go. Um, because the Wi-Fi is terrible, uh, you should download it before you go. Um, and that was then I realized an incredible moment of democratizing the theater, not um, first of all, in terms of price, but also in terms of sort of attitude and approach, right? Um, that somebody might not be available at eight o'clock on Thursday night, or they might have to get a babysitter, or and which makes it twice as expensive. When my daughter was born, I couldn't go to the theater because I suddenly couldn't afford it mm. because it cost, you know, 
not only the price of the ticket, but the price of the babysitter and the this and the that and the other and et cetera. Um, <clears throat> so, and I, th but I also think in terms of our habits of theater going or quote unquote theater etiquette, right? That I think there's a different etiquette of, and I know the etiquette of bringing my cell phone along and putting my earbuds in. Um, and so I don't have to worry, am I behaving properly or not? Or, you know, or is somebody asking me to behave in a way that feels uncomfortable to me or, right? So I think there are all kinds of democratization. Um, I will also say that it's wheelchair accessible. Uh, the ferry is easily wheelchair accessible. The subway plays are more difficult. Um, and, but that's partly because the elevators smell so terrible in the subways, but they are there. But I, you know, I had somebody say, well, what about accessibility? My father's in a wheelchair, so I'm quite aware of, um, wheelchair accessibility these days. Um, and also I carted my daughter around in a stroller that will make you, you know, you're like, really, there's no <laughs> elevator. Really? You didn't put the, you know, thing <laughs> on the sidewalk. Um, so, uh, they are also wheelchair accessible, um, in a way that theaters in this city still are not wheelchair accessible. Mm -hmm. I take my dad to the theater and we go around the block and down the thing and up the thing and through the thing and the back hallway. And it's crazy. Um, so I, you know, but the accessibility issue was a happy accident. It was more conscious in subway plays. It was a happy accident for fairy play, mm -hmm. where I just wanted to make an audio play. The other thing I think we do is a little more counterintuitive, which is we're asking you to download the plays and then put your smartphone away and look around. And I think, uh, or maybe it's just me, but I go on the subway and I'm on my phone, you know, one last email, one last, let me just send this text. And I know I'm underground, but it'll send in a minute, you know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so I'm not looking around. I'm not interacting with my environment. And I think that's true of many other people as well. And so what we're asking you to do is download the pod play and then put the phone in your pocket and look at who's on the subway with you and appreciate them and uh, interact with them. And so my hope also, again, like our other plays, is that it asks you to practice radical empathy. Mm, right. Like uh, last time I did the end play, uh, I was on the subway and I saw Javier Munoz from Hamilton. So you can even oh. get Broadway, you know, yes. cameos. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you wouldn't have seen him if you were texting away. I, yeah, I wouldn't yeah. have, yeah. I want to ask you now about, you know, like the work that you do with your actors and the mm -hmm. workshops and classes that mm -hmm. This Is Not a Theater Company is offering. Uh, Jonathan Matthews, who's been a company member, uh, core company member for many years, has choreographed a dance for a bathtub, a dance for a pool, and a dance for a cafe. So he has begun to think about what it means to take dance into site-specific places. What does it mean to choreograph a dance in a bathtub, uh, in and for a bathtub? And I thought for pool play, he did a, he in fact invented, I would argue, a new kind of dance. We all know what synchronized swimming is, and we all know what modern dance is. But I think that was the first time I've ever seen modern dance in a swimming pool. 
Um, and, you know, what does that mean and what does that do and what can that do? And how do you work with the splashes and the way that the water is moving, right? And the viscosity of it. Um, so he gave a workshop in site-specific dance. Interactive acting, I think, is also a unique uh, twist on acting and requires certain kinds of openness and training um, because you have to hold on to your character and you at the same time you have to interact not with someone who's a character with you in the play which you know how to do so that's what scene study teaches and not with sort of stand-up comedy or improv where uh, there might not be a character but you know you know that you go with the moment but you have to stay in character and interact and improv with somebody who's not in character mm. or somebody who isn't sure whether or not they're in character or somebody who you're trying to invite to understand that they are in character. So at the beginning of Versailles, for example, which was the piece that we did in uh, my apartment and then in other apartments, um, people would come to a party and we had hors d'oeuvres and wine and people would interact and then we would we the sort of excuse for being there was that we said we're all privileged to be here uh and it would the play itself was about income inequality and privilege and things like that and so we said we're all you know privileged the uh the hostess has um commissioned a dance for the bathroom and we'll all have a turn to see it but we don't fit in all at the same time so you know feel free to have hors d'oeuvres and there's cake in the kitchen and things like that and so we would divide you up into different groups and you would eat cake in the kitchen which became a, a very obvious reference to Marie Antoinette <laughs> and etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and so then of course you realize that in fact this woman giving you cake in the kitchen was an actress performing but you also began to realize that you had been cast in the play and uh, in fact, one of my students came and she said, you know, I was on my way with my Metro card thinking I am not a member of the 1%. I can barely afford my Metro card and blah, 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 blah. And then by the time she left, she said, oh, I really realized that I'm part of the global 1%. I'm an NYU student. I live in a dorm. So, you know, whether w whatever my background was, now that I have this degree, I am, you know, going off into the world of privilege, et cetera, et cetera. So we were asking everyone to be cast as members of the 1% and to think about themselves as privileged and to think about what they were going to do with that privilege. But the interactions then in the living room in the beginning are interactions between actors who know they're acting and audience members who know they're at a party, which is always a place where everyone's acting, going back to your question about right presentation of oh, self in everyday yep. life yep. right <laughs> who's not acting at a cocktail party in new york um but so they were acting um whatever role they wanted to perform at a cocktail party in manhattan but then also understood that they were being cast as people who were at a party in a you know cocktail party in manhattan um and that's a particular kind of acting. So our actors, we had workshops with uh, this brilliant guy, Jeff Wirth, uh, who um, started an organization called Interactive Play Lab. And 
he really gave us great workshops about how we interact, how we invite other people to engage, the kinds of moments that can unintentionally shut people down or invite them or or in fact deal with the audience member, you know, that audience member who actually wants to be center stage, um, wished they had auditioned for you. <laughs> and uh, so they start talking back to the actors and interrupting the play and how to actually gently and kindly and within the context of the play, let them know that that behavior is not appropriate and how to let people know what is appropriate and help them. So those skills are, uh, different than the traditional skills that many actors get in, uh, you know, scene study classes. So we took some of those workshops with Jeff. I've taken other workshops and done other exercises and developed other exercises. And so um, I'm teaching a, you know, three-hour workshop in interactive acting, um, which is open to everyone, actors, directors, uh, anyone who's interested I'm also offering a workshop in the actor's presence because we tend to speak about presence on stage as something that someone's born with or not born with, and it's absolutely technical, and you can learn how to do it in three hours. I mean, you, can, <laughs> you have to then pay attention. Right. It's not, you know, you have to continue to practice, but you can learn what the components are in three hours. Um, and uh, I've been offering exercises in rasa boxes, which is... Um, a fascinating set of exercises developed by Richard Schechner that really teach you to be an athlete of the emotions. Um, so we've been doing that. I also have um, offered an act uh, workshop in cool downs. Um, and I'll just try to sneak this onto the podcast because this is part of a soapbox that I'm on recently, uh, which is that as an industry, we teach people how to do warm ups. And we teach them never to go on stage without a warm-up, and you have to warm up, and blah, 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 blah. But we don't teach them how to cool down. Oh, wow. And so what happens then when you're playing Medea, and then you have to go and put your kids to bed? Or what happens if you're in the Duchess of Malfi, and there's a bloodbath, and everyone's dead on stage, or Hamlet, or... Uh, 1984 or you know these plays that are really tough to do right what happens if there's a rape on stage and what and how do you leave that in the theater and de-roll is the term that's used actually in drama therapy where they they do have a cool down process but generally speaking in the American theater um you know, we ask actors to warm up in training. We teach them how to do it. Directors will often run a warm up, you know, as part of the process or right. Um, but then the cool down is usually everybody goes out for a drink and then they go home. And I'm not a prohibitionist. I have no problem with, you know, two martinis. But I think that people should have other tools in their toolkit for cooling down. And um, so I've been talking about this a lot in the last couple of years. And in fact, talked to um, Jonathan Mandel, who then wrote a piece for American Theater Magazine, um, and then <clears throat> did a um, uh, panel on it for SAG-AFTRA. But what's interesting, I think, is that on that panel, there were two actors who, brilliant actors, who have figured it out for themselves. And one of them said, oh, well, you know, you learn it. If you don't know how to kind of get out of character, then you shouldn't be in the business. And 
on the one hand, I respect that. On the other hand, I think, but we don't teach anyone how to do that. So as an industry, it feels like that's part of this whole capitalist, like, we need you to warm up because that's going to help you perform well. And that's the part we care about because that's the part we sold tickets for. But once we're done selling the tickets and giving the good performance, you're on your own. Bye-bye. You know, we don't care about you as a person or a human being or an actor because we sucked out of you what we needed to suck out of you. And I think as an industry, we need to be more aware of burnout, of of the mental health of the actor. Um, and there is a study that I no longer can find, but I remember reading this study that someone did about actors who were in comedies and actors who were in tragedies. And the ones in tragedies were had colds, they had the flu, they were sicker. The ones in comedies were help, healthier. And the, the conclusion that these scientists drew, because they also took blood and there was more cortisol in the um, uh, actors doing tragedy, which makes more sense, right? That's the stress hormone. So, and we all know that laughter is healthy and et cetera. So actors who were in comedies were healthier, literally healthier than actors in tragedies. So how can we help develop techniques for cooling down and spread the word that a cool down is important for the health of the actor? And um, how can we start teaching cool downs in our training or, you know, at Juilliard, at NYU, at Yale, at UCSD, at wherever it is that people are going for training? Um, How can we incorporate a cool down into the training program so that actors have tools to, you know, come back um, to themselves after Mm. they've done a really tough role. So, you know, considering that a lot of the actors in the pot place at least, for instance, are regular non-acting people, I'm going to be completely bold and go on a limb Mm -hmm. right now and say that if you are listening right now and you've done the subway place, you've already acted against like the toughest like scene partner of all times with, you know, the subway, (laughs) right? So would you recommend this workshops also for people who have no interest in being professional actors? Sure, because how do you go to that meeting where somebody says something horrible or loses it or, you know, whatever? How do you... Uh, how do you get out of your fight or flight response after that? Um, so, you know, I mean, even how do you come home from a day at work and leave work at work and come home and uh, spend time with your loved ones? Right. Right. Um, I, I think that's difficult for everybody. Some people have built into, you know, they go to work, they go home, they go to the or they go to the gym and then they go home or they go to a yoga class and then they go home. That's a great thing to do. I'm just because the business I'm in is theater and because I teach at NYU Tisch, um, I'm, my sense of urgency involves actors uh, and directors and sound designers and also because sometimes we end tech at midnight or the show ends at midnight and there's, you know, there's not a yoga studio open. So how can you do it if you can't get to a yoga studio or... Um, something like that. So absolutely anyone who's listening who thinks, gosh, I often feel stressed out at the end of a day at work. Well, then come learn some practices or even just start saying to yourself, right, I need a cool down. 
How can they find out more about this workshops? Where can they find the information? Uh, on our website, which is www.thisisnotatheatercompany.com. Uh, and theater, we spell theater R-E. Um, but yeah, just or just Google This Is Not A Theater Company and we have, uh, you'll get to the landing page and then there is a uh, tab that says productions and you can look up all our past productions and there's a tab for workshops. And we're going to put the links in the show notes. So you're going to find them over there. And when can I, well, and everyone else, not just me, you'll <laughs> see another This Is Not A Theater uh, Company production. Well, we are working on two pieces right now um, in a kind of long workshop process for each of them. Uh, so I won't say anything about that because I'm not sure when we will decide <laughs> okay. to open those to the public. But we are hoping to bring Cafe Play back. Um, and again, I'm not sure yet which cafe we'll bring it back to. Um, but I'm in conversation with a number of different places and... Uh, we'll see. It's exciting. Yeah. I want to go, go to a different time of the day. Now. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right, right. Well, yeah, that was the thing. We had uh, breakfast shows, lunch shows, and afternoon noon tea shows. I want to bring in some dinner shows. Oh. And so that's what we're, that's what we're trying to figure out. That's the ultimate dinner theater kind of experience. Exactly, right? exactly. <laughs> or theater dinner. <laughs> <laughs> right. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank uh, you. And I hope to talk to you. I'm sure I'm going to talk to you again. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that are different from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Maximum. You can find Aaron Me at AaronBMe1. And I am at Jose Solis Maya. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximuisms. You can get to the store via Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. Thank you. Theatrical Media.